Good evening and welcome again. Thank you. Did I do something wrong? Okay. When I got up and said something, I heard somebody say something back, and I thought, maybe I'm missing something. Gotcha, gotcha. That's what happens when you get old. And so uh, my hearing's not as well as it used to be. But thank you for being here tonight. I'm grateful for your presence tonight, and we're always glad for the opportunity to be together. Uh, the lesson this morning on pain and suffering, and the lessons that we have learned in life as a result of the pain and suffering that we have endured, I hope and pray that the lesson resonated. Uh, I hope that what was said this morning will be beneficial to you. I'm not sure that, well, as I reflect back on the years that I've been preaching, I don't know if I have seen a week quite like the week we've had at Olive Branch with all the losses that we've sustained. And uh, it's very humbling and sobering to think about people that just a few weeks ago were alive and well and are now in eternity. And so we hope and pray that we can maintain our health we can go forward and continue to be a light in a darkened world. In our study tonight, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1. The theme of our study tonight, the hope of glory. And really, the Apostle Paul identifies the one in whom we hope, and that's Jesus. And so he is the hope of the world, and it is in him and through him that we have hope for a better day, a better place. So tonight we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1. I said last week, prior to the lesson on Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the book of Colossians exalts Christ. I'm not sure there's another book in the New Testament that paints a greater picture of the exalted Christ than Paul does in this book. Now, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul in that epistle exalts the church of Christ. And so when you take the two together, you have Christ and His church, and they go hand in glove. You can't separate the one from the other. And so in our study tonight, what we're going to do, first of all, I want to call attention to the exaltation of Christ. And then secondly, very simple lesson, secondly, the proclamation of Christ. So with that being said, I want to start our study tonight by first and foremost talking about the person of salvation. Now Paul, as I said a moment ago, exalts the Christ. And what he does is provides us with insight into the deity of Christ. Note if you would in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, listen to what Paul said concerning the Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image, as used by the Apostle Paul in this verse, means the perfect likeness. We might say the exact representation. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the perfect likeness or the exact representation of God the Father. Now, you remember the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1, in talking about the Christ, 
He said he is the express image of his person. During the earthly ministry of Jesus in John chapter 14, prior to his death on Calvary and ascension to heaven, you remember he said to Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So that's the one we're talking about. The pre-existent Christ. So we have the pre-incarnate Christ, that would be prior to inhabiting human form, and then the incarnate Christ. Now, note if you would what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn here carries with it the idea of his priority over, and, or rather his priority to and preeminence over all things. Jesus is preeminent. preeminent. Matter of fact, in verse 18, he would say that in all things he might have the preeminence. One writer has said that the word firstborn is a Jewish technical term that means uncreated. Well, Jesus was and is an uncreated being, isn't he? He has always existed. You remember what John said? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Micah, as he foretold of the birthplace of Christ, said, speaking of Jesus, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting or from the days of eternity. And then, of course, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, you remember one of the great I am statements, before Abraham was, I am, denoting his self-existent state. So we're talking about deity. Now, Paul said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So we have, number one, his preeminence over creation. Listen to what he said. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. Paul here saying that Jesus was the agent by which the world came into being. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You remember in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was God who said, let there be light. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Moses tells us that the Godhead spoke these words, let us make man in our image and likeness. So Jesus was the agent by which the world was made, those things that are visible and even the invisible things. All right, so that being said, I think about the words of John in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. The Lord Jesus Christ, preeminent over creation. And then note this, verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. When He says, He is before all things, all He's saying is that Jesus is an eternal being. He is antecedent to creation. He existed prior to the creation of the universe. He has always existed. He is the beginning, the end, the Alpha, the Omega. That's the one we're talking about. Now, with that in mind, 
Look at verse 18. First, we have the preeminence of Christ over creation. But then secondly, His preeminence over the church. In verse 18, Paul said, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. All right? Jesus was the agent by which the physical realm was created. And what Paul is saying now is that Jesus was the agent by which the spiritual realm was created. That is the church. Look at that word beginning here. The word beginning as used by Paul denotes the active source or the source from which something came into being. So what's Paul saying in verse 18? That Jesus was the one who brought the church into being. Now, God the Father, as you well know, is the one that devised the redemptive plan. God the Father is the one that devised the plan. Jesus was the agent by which it came into being. The Father being the architect, Christ being the agent. So He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The church was born and bred in the mind of God. We're going to talk about that in just a moment or two. So number one, we have the person of salvation. Drop down a note, if you would, down in verse 19. Paul said, It pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. You remember in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul would say, In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Jesus is a part of the Godhead. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Then in verse 22, in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and irreproachable in His sight. So God the Father was the architect of that redemptive plan, and Jesus was the agent by which the world was reconciled back to the Father, wasn't He? And He accomplished that on Calvary's cross by the shedding of His blood. So think with me in the second place. Number one, the person of salvation. Number two, note if you would, the place of salvation. Back up and look now at verse 12. Paul said, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us or made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So number one, to understand, salvation is in Christ. That's what Paul said in verse 14. It's in Him that we have forgiveness or redemption. Salvation is exclusive to Jesus, isn't it? As a matter of fact, Jesus would say, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Luke would say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Jesus is our only hope. And Paul places salvation in Christ, exclusively in Christ. 
And the only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Over in Colossians chapter 3, Paul would say, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The reference there would be to their baptism into Christ. When they were baptized into Christ, what occurred? Number one, they were saved. It's what Jesus taught in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Number two, they enjoyed the remission, the forgiveness of their sins. Acts 2, verse 38. Those were the terms legislated by God, set forth by the apostles in terms of enjoying remission. Well, what was that? The Bible says they were instructed to repent, be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. It was also for the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. So when they complied with heaven's will, what happened? They enjoyed salvation, the remission of sins, the washing away of sins. They were forgiven. And as Paul said, they enjoyed redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is not just in Christ, but it's in the church of Christ. So with that in mind, look at verse 13 again. And by the way, back in verse 12, when Paul said that the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, what are the qualifying terms of entering the kingdom, of enjoying this great inheritance? Well, it would be to obey the gospel, wouldn't it? God is the one who has set forth in a very clear and distinct way how we are to enter the kingdom, how we qualify for those benefits. If you want to take out a life policy in all probability, you're going to have to qualify. You're going to have to meet certain criterion in order to take out that policy. Well, by the same token, if you want to go to heaven and you want to be one of God's children, you've got to qualify. But now that invitation is open to all, isn't it? Jesus said, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. The Bible says God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, verse 13. Paul said, He has delivered us out of the power of darkness. That is the domain governed by the devil. Jesus identified him in John chapter 12, verse 31, as the prince or ruler of this world. And Paul here is saying to the church at Colossae, when you obeyed the gospel, God delivered you out of that domain of darkness. Now you remember John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one or is engulfed in spiritual darkness. Those who are outside of Christ, Christ, they are in spiritual darkness. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So those who have never obeyed the gospel, they are in a state of spiritual darkness. So Paul said we're delivered out of the power of darkness, and then he said we are translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Well, what kingdom would he be talking about? The very same kingdom that Daniel foretold of as recorded by Daniel in chapter 2 of his book. Daniel, looking down in time, saw a day in which the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. 
And I think it's interesting that when John the Baptist began his preaching and teaching, and you remember Matthew records in chapter 3, he began preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that John the Baptist began to herald was the very same kingdom that Daniel foretold of in chapter 2, verse 44. It was that stone cut without hands. Jesus, when He began His public ministry, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 4, verse 17, echoed the very same message. He said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's my question. There are some in the world today who have the idea that the kingdom has yet to be established. It's not what Paul teaches, is it? I was listening to a very popular preacher. Matter of fact, I would say he is internationally known. And he was talking about the kingdom this week on the radio. And he said that, you know, some people say that if Christ is the king, you can't be a king without a kingdom. And I thought, well, you know, he's right. That's true. That's what I've said. That's what many of us have said in days gone by. He said, but that's not necessarily the case. The example he used was David. I thought this was an interesting, uh, an interesting illustration. He said, you know, David was king over Israel. But he spent a period of time in exile. And I thought, are you kidding me? That's the best you can come up with? As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes the point that Jesus was raised from the dead to sit upon David's throne. Well, what throne was that? It was a spiritual throne. This fella, as well as many who propagate the same kind of message, their idea is that the Lord's going to establish at some point in the future an earthly kingdom. Listen, the kingdom is here. And Paul said to the church at Colossae, the church and the kingdom are one and the same, Paul said that they had been delivered out of the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Now, listen to what Jesus said in Mark 9. Verily I say unto you, there are some of you who will not taste death until the kingdom of God come with power. Was that true or false? Think about the implications. If Jesus promised to establish the kingdom during the lifetime of some of those who were present in the first century, and He did not fulfill that promise, what does that say about God? Is that not a reflection on His integrity, on His character, on His deity? And doesn't the Bible say with regard to God, it's impossible for Him to lie? Jesus said, look, there are some of you standing here that will not taste death, that is, you will not physically depart this world until you see the kingdom come with power. When did that occur? On Pentecost Day. You remember what Jesus said to the apostles, Luke chapter 24, verse 49, tarry in Jerusalem until you see, until you're endued with power from on high. They, were, they received that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, according to chapter 2 at verse 4. They set forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. And all who comply with those conditions become a member of what? The kingdom. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John said that he was a brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom. Is the kingdom here? 
When Jesus, in Matthew 16, promised to build the church, you remember in verse 19, he used the figure of a kingdom rather than the church. He said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Just talking about the church there. So the church and the kingdom are one and the same. So when we're baptized into Christ, the beauty of the gospel is we don't have to, we don't have to join the church or be voted into the church. No, the Bible says God adds us to the church of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. In Acts 5, verse 14, the Bible says, And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. How were they added? They were added just like they were on Pentecost Day. They believed Jesus to be the Son of God. They repented of their sins. They confessed His name, and they were immersed in water. And God then put them in the kingdom or in the church of Christ. So we have, number one, the person of salvation. Number two, we have the place of salvation that's in Christ and in the church of Christ. And I really want to just stress very quickly, when I make mention of the church of Christ, I'm not using that in a denominational sense. What I'm trying to say is that the church belongs to Christ. It is His church. He built it. He bought it. It belongs to Him. The church of Christ was pre-denominational. It is non-denominational. It existed hundreds of years prior to denominationalism. Matter of fact, if we were to take Peter or Paul or one of the other apostles and somehow have the opportunity to bring them forward into the 21st century, let's just imagine that we could get in our automobile and begin driving around the streets in Olive Branch and then make our way to Memphis. As we drove down the streets and saw various churches wearing varying names and practicing various doctrines, what do you think their response would be? Now think about that for a minute. If Peter or Paul or one of the other apostles had the luxury of living today and they saw on every church, on every corner, a church building, and those church buildings wearing different names. Don't you think they'd ask the question, what's, what's all this about? What, what do you mean by this is the Baptist church, and this is the Methodist church, and this is the Catholic church, and this is the Presbyterian church, and this is the XYZ church? You fill in the blank. They would know nothing of the religious world as we see it today. Why? Because it was foreign to their teaching. It is foreign to Scripture. There's only one place to be saved, that's in Christ. And there is only one church authorized to save. Well, what church is that? It's the church of Christ. That is, it is the church that belongs to Christ. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13? By one Spirit you were all baptized into one body. What's the one body? Well, Paul said it in Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. To be a member of the church that we read about in Scripture. Now let me ask this question. Does it matter what church we belong to? 
Does it matter what church you're a member of? If I understand what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, it matters. Paul said, speaking of Christ, He is the Savior of the body. Well, how many bodies are there? There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called, in one hope of your calling. There's one body, and as Paul affirmed, there's one head. That's what the Bible teaches. So if we're not in the one body, and we don't comply with the conditions set forth to enter that body, are we among the saved? The answer would be no. That's why it's imperative that we follow what the Bible teaches. So, that being said very quickly, the third thought. We talk about the power of salvation. When a person obeys the gospel, there is a transformation that is to take place in that individual's life. Matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about putting to death that old man and putting on the new man. And so there is a transformation and then consecration, to be consecrated to the will of God. Let me just highlight a couple of verses very quickly. Look at verse 10, chapter 1. This ought to be, this ought to be our desire as members of the body of Christ. Paul, in writing to the church, said that you might have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Isn't that our desire? I mean, don't we want to be pleasing to God the Father? Didn't Jesus say, I always do those things that please my Father? If we do what God has set forth in Scripture, can we please the Father? Sure we can. Matter of fact, Jesus even pictured that great and final day when He would say to those on the right hand, well done, good and faithful servant. They had done those things that were pleasing to the Lord. So he said that we're to have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, and then being fruitful in every good work. Our goal as children of God is to bear fruit unto God, isn't it? In Romans chapter 6, Paul would say that we're to bring forth fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Jesus said, Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you shall be my disciples. And so we strive to the best of our ability to bear forth fruit in our lives. That would be fruit such as righteousness and holiness and meekness and patience. You could take, for example, the fruit of the Spirit, or 2 Peter chapter 1, etc. And then to try to lead other people to Christ, that would be another way that we could bear fruit. And then note, if you would, verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. The beauty of being a child of God is... We have a book called the Bible that we're trying to grow and learn from. As far as I can tell, as long as you live, you can always grow in knowledge, can't you? That's the beauty of God's Word. Sometimes I am utterly amazed at certain statements in Scripture, and sometimes I'll ask myself, how did I miss that? How was it that I never saw that? I was listening, I was listening to... John Shannon not long ago, and he was talking about a particular text, and he said, I've been reading this text for 30 years and never seen this point. Well, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? That's the beauty of investigating the Word of God. And listen, we have to do our homework. We've got to spend time studying the Word of God. Now, very quickly, secondly, our time's almost gone. First, 
the exaltation of Christ. Secondly, the proclamation of Christ. Note, if you would, what Paul said. He talks about his afflictions in Christ. Verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul was a man that suffered immensely for the cause of Christ. In that, he could identify with the Lord, couldn't he? And yet, at least from my vantage point, when you read about the life of Paul, here was a guy that was more than happy to suffer for the cause of Christ. His whole life was about advancing the cause of Christ and trying to live in such a way so that he could lead others to Christ, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't that his goal? You remember, for example, some six years after he penned this particular epistle, he wrote to Timothy. And he talked about remembering Jesus Christ of the seed of David, who was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He said, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But then here's what he said, but the word of God is not chained. Yes, Paul was in prison, but what was he trying to do? while in prison. Yes, he was suffering for the cause of Christ, and yet his goal was to advance the kingdom. Matter of fact, over in chapter 4, listen to this. Paul is writing to the church in chapter 4, verse 2. He said, continue steadfastly or earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, also praying for us. All right, Paul, what is it you want us to pray for? that God would open to us a door for the Word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. That mystery had to do with God's redemptive plan, inclusive of the Gentiles. He said, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul was a man that lived to share the gospel with other people. So I think, first of all, about his afflictions in Christ and then his aim in Christ. In verse 25, Paul makes mention of the fact that he had become a minister according to the stewardship or dispensation from God. He said, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now look at verse 28. I want you to think about the gravity of the message. Paul said, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. I think Paul here is simply saying this. The gospel is an indispensable message. It is a message that is, is incredibly serious. Well, why is that? Because those who obey it enjoy salvation. Those who reject it will face condemnation. Paul said, look, we preach Christ, warning every man. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talked about how we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may give an account of the deeds done in the body, he said, according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Now listen to this in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Paul said, we persuade men. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know what the writer's saying? He's saying, You do not want to step out onto the plains of eternity unprepared to meet God. That's why Paul could say, Look, we warn every man. We teach every man because we understand there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And if people don't obey the gospel of Christ, they will be banished to an everlasting hell. As Jesus said, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Can you imagine that? Let that sink in for a moment. You think about stepping out into eternity, unprepared to meet God, banished from the presence of the light of God forevermore. No second chances. No hope for a better day. No hope for any kind of reprieval. But rather to spend eternity separated from God and His people. Maybe we need to do more preaching on hell sometimes. Paul said, look, we preach and we teach and we warn. So the gravity of the message and then the goal of his message. Note if you would what Paul said. He said, Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. What was his goal? The goal was to ultimately convert people to Christ so that they might enjoy the hope of heaven. Back up and look at Colossians chapter 1 very quickly. Listen to what Paul said in verse 3. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is, it points people in the direction of heaven, doesn't it? And what Paul is saying is, look, we're preaching so that people might enjoy the blessings and favors of God, so that we might stand before Him, stand before Him irreproachable, unblameable in His sight. That's our goal, isn't it? So, it might be that you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, and you don't have any hope, but you want the hope it's only in Christ. Could I encourage you to come to Him tonight? To put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. To recognize that He died for your sins. That He was buried in a borrowed tomb, raised again the third day. If you believe that with all your heart, and you're willing to repent of all your sins, confessing the name of Christ before others as the eunuch did in Acts 8 verse 37, and then if you'll be baptized into Christ, all of your sins will be washed away. You'll be delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into God's kingdom where if you'll live faithfully until death. Matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 1, I want you to listen to what Paul said in verse 23. Writing to those who had been redeemed and reconciled, he said, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Would it be possible for a child of God to fall? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. The beauty is God will forgive. He'll take us back. 
So if you haven't lived a faithful, steadfast life, would you come home to him tonight? Could we pray with you and for you and God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing?